Two weeks, two phone reviews. That's how we roll here on the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. And this week, we're taking a look at 5G on a budget. And the results may surprise you a little bit. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we're taking a look at the T-Mobile Revel 5G. It's a $400 mid-range smartphone that comes with some surprises. I'm not going to give away the farm here, but I will say that this wasn't my most anticipated smartphone of the year. But I had a chance to go in-depth with it and came out on the other side with some changed expectations. And we'll get to that, but first, we have to get to the news of the week. Before we start, I have a few announcements to get out of the way. The first is that I've officially launched the Benefit of the Doubt YouTube channel. Now, before you get super excited, I'm going to need you to ratchet down your expectations just a little bit. I am not Mr. Mobile. I am not MKBHD. The YouTube channel is going to serve as a landing place for things that I'd like to show you, but words fall short. And the first video going up there is going to be photo samples from today's review, the Revel 5G. Other videos will follow, including unboxings and a new video series that I'm launching probably in the new year, if not sooner. Also, fun fact, I posted my first TikTok today, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. Now I just have to figure out what to do for the rest of the videos. Now, getting back to YouTube, here's where I need to ask you for a favor. Go to benefitofadow.com and visit the YouTube link posted there. It's long and stupid, but that's because I don't have 100 subscribers yet, so I can't get a custom name. And that's where you can help. Click the link in the show notes or on benefitofadow.com, or if you insist on typing something, you can go to bit.ly slash B-O-T-D-Tube. That's Benefit of the Dowd YouTube, so B-O-T-D-T-U-B-E. Hit the subscribe button so I can actually get youtube.com slash benefit of a doubt or whatever youtube works anyway more content is coming to tiktok as well youtube just became a bit more urgent because of the reviews so that's why that came out almost first but not first because i posted my first tiktok today and this is what happens when i improvise and go off script also i owe all of you a bit of an apology because i completely forgot to mention our upcoming device review schedule and it's It's a lot. We've already got the contest going for the U-Review questions for the Moto Edge Not Plus that Cliff is going to be doing in a couple of weeks. And the contest is limited to just three devices, the one we did last week, the one we're doing now, and the Moto Edge Not Plus. However, we do have the Samsung Galaxy S20 Fan Edition coming up next week, and... I'm really sorry for the short notice, but that's where the apology comes in. We also have coming up the iPhone 12 Pro and a new phone that I'm not allowed to talk about yet. There may be other devices coming as well, still waiting for word on a few of those, but those are what's on the calendar for now. So get those questions coming in. So to recap, we have a contest for you review questions for the Moto Edge Not Plus. We also have the Samsung Galaxy S20 Fan Edition and the iPhone 12 Pro and a mystery phone that will be revealed next week. So get those questions in. This is your opportunity to ask reviewers of phones questions directly. What do you want to know? Hit us up. And 
Just one more thing, I promise. I totally forgot something last week, so I owe friend of the show BenderTube, check him out at BenderTubeOG on Twitter, BTDubs, an apology. Homeboy went ahead and made an Alexa skill for our favorite podcast so that you can actually say, you know, the name, play Benefit of a Doubt podcast, and it'll actually play my show, not the Benefit of a Doubt podcast, which, hey, I'm sure it's a fine podcast, but, you know, move on, bitch, this is my corner. I put a link to the Alexa skill in the show notes, so hit up that link and install that bad boy onto Alexa if you have one. And if you don't, I totally understand because I'm a Google family. And now we get to the news. Under the portfolio of various Apple services falls Apple TV and Apple Music. This week, in an attempt to clear up confusion between the two, Apple launched Apple Music TV. Um, what? Apple Music TV is basically MTV brought to you by Apple. This is going to be a 24-hour stream of music videos and special events. Basically, it'll be what MTV was back in the days when it actually had M on it. You know, music videos. Crazy concept, I know. I actually used to watch MTV back in the days when it actually showed videos, though that was right around my Nine Inch Nails time, and he didn't really make TV-friendly or human-friendly videos, come to think of it. Anyway, Apple Music TV is free and will be available in both the Apple TV app and Apple Music app, which I think really just clarifies things so much. Of course, it's probably only a matter of time before Apple TV follows its predecessor with a number of really terrible 20-something reality TV shows, so I suggest taking it up now while it's not terrible. You might think of Disney as the wholesome, child-friendly entertainment complex that it is, but as it turns out, Disney has a darker side and has made some missteps in the past. Old Disney shows depict harmful racism and racial stereotypes, which, as inexcusable as they are now, when they were produced, they were, quote-unquote, just part of the culture, though still pretty terrible. So in an effort to clean up its act, Disney is doing what I admittedly a middle-aged white guy, considers the classiest way to address these oversights. At the beginning of a video on Disney, there is a 12-second unskippable warning that says, Look, what you're about to watch sucks, and it sucked back then too, but we as a culture didn't realize it sucked because we were stupid. Now we're less stupid, and this still sucks, but we did it, and we own it. And we hope that you'll still watch this movie and not hate us. We set up a website that discusses in detail about how we sucked and how we're trying to be better. I hope you'll visit the site so we can all suck a little less. And honestly, in my opinion, that's kind of the right way to do it. I mean, what else are they going to do? Remake all their cartoons into live-action movies? Oh, they are? Well then. I don't know if it would be right to pull Peter Pan from Disney Plus because of the song Why is a Red Man Red, even though, seriously, Disney, what the hell were you people thinking? Peter Pan is a fun film about a bunch of kids with no parents being chased by pirates and dodging alligators that are threatening to eat them, and why do people like this movie again? Anyway, Disney is owning its mistakes, and that's good. Would have been better had it not made those mistakes in the first place, but owning mistakes is overall a good thing. I have spent the last three weeks reminding you all to vote, and yep, <laughs> I'm going to do it again. Go out and vote, please. No matter where your preferred candidate is in the polls, go vote. I said this on Twitter, and I'll say it again. I live in a blue state that hasn't voted Republican since we all had eight-inch tall hair and listened to MC Hammer before he went bankrupt. But I still voted this election. Please do so. 
you know, just in case. Anyway, Google wants to help you vote by listing polling places in Google and in Google Maps results. And funny enough, I tried this, and in addition to City Hall and my normal voting place, it also listed Schomburg Trickster Art Gallery, except it wasn't Schomburg Trickster Art Gallery, it was Schomburg Trickster Art Galley, and I was like, what? Google also listed his hours as temporarily closed, so I called them, and sure enough, they are open, and they are a polling place. And see, I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't Googled it. And if you're interested, just Google how to vote and hope you don't get caught up in an antitrust case, which, by the way, leads us into our next story. The U.S. Justice Department is suing Google for antitrust behaviors surrounding search. This follows a long investigation into the matter, and it seems Google's reckoning has come. The lawsuit includes the U.S. Justice Department and 13 other attorneys general in various Republican states. According to the suit, Google uses anti-competitive tactics to ensure its monopoly in search and text advertisements, including 60% of search queries that come from Google's exclusionary agreements. A lot of tech outlets are comparing this lawsuit to the one against Microsoft with one key differentiator. They think Google can actually win this thing. And a couple of weeks ago, I agreed that of the big four companies, Google was probably the least offender of all of them. It is true that Google's exclusionary agreements prohibit phone makers from installing other app stores on phones with Play services, and that's no bueno for sure. Like, Google shouldn't be doing it. But Google's response was fairly simple. People use Google because they want to, not because they have to. Unless you consider how bad other search engines are, in which case, yeah, they have to. I added that last part, and yes, I'm looking at you, Bing. Obviously, this is fairly huge in the Google space, so we'll be keeping a close eye on the story as it slowly, slowly develops because that is our justice system. Meanwhile, Eric Schmidt, who used to be the CEO of Google and remains with the company as a shareholder, said on Tuesday that the antitrust suit is misplaced, noting that Google doesn't have 100% market share. Well, yeah, but that's not really what antitrust means. He also said that regulation may be in store for social media networks in general, but not before he called those same social media networks amplifiers for idiots. And I can't say I totally disagree with the sentiment. The problem that the internet faces is that there are too many voices, and voices shouting the same things tend to gather together into their echo chambers. I'm not really sure how to fix that. Twitter tried encouraging people to read, and Republicans took exception to that. Literally, like this week, they took exception to Twitter insisting that they read articles before sharing them. That's a whole other story and a whole other bag of headaches, so I'm just going to leave that right there. But the fact of the matter is, social media allows the free-flowing exchange of ideas. The bad news is it allows the free-flowing of bad, stupid, or dangerous ideas, as well as good ideas. As for being an amplifier for idiots, that's what podcasts are for. This news story brought to you by Benefit of the Idiot. For those of you who have been following my work, you'll know that the Foxconn opening a mega factory in Wisconsin story has had me on the edge of my seat fascinated since it emerged in 2016-2017 because... It just didn't happen, and it never will happen. Because Foxconn has a long history of making huge promises to cities around the world and then just not doing it. It's a strangely consuming tale, actually. So when The Verge wrote 10,000 words about it this past week, I was riveted. I read the whole thing cover to cover. Because it's freaking hilarious how an entire state 
was and still is being duped by a Chinese corporation that just wanted to chat with the president about, you know, not banning everything that they make. But my favorite part of the article, and you should read the whole thing because The Verge has been just as fascinated with the story as I have been. But my favorite part was when one of the VPs at Foxconn was asked what exactly their plans of the Foxconn buildings in Wisconsin were, they said that researchers would be, quote, developing Foxconn's AI 8K plus 5G ecosystem, unquote. And the article goes on to say that this is, quote, something that, other than being a list of different technologies, has never been coherently explained. Because, come on, people, AI 8K plus 5G ecosystem, that is totally made up. That is pure-grade 100% PR babble. The thing about all of this is, the city in Wisconsin where this factory was supposed to be built forced people out of their homes, threatening eminent domain, so that Foxconn could just drop its pants and start screwing people. Foxconn has literally hired people with nothing to do long enough to get subsidies from the state and then lay off those same people. And Wisconsin just keeps on taking it and taking it. Wake up, Wisconsin. Anyway, this is a fascinating story, and I suggest that you take a lunch break and read it over because it's so gobsmacking like, you're what? Really? No. Really? That's a thing? No. Holy crap, yes. And you're welcome. One of the hardest parts about NASA and following science in general is thinking long-term. And this week was not exactly the culmination of a years-long project, but it was a significant step. Launched in 2016, the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft met up with a near-Earth asteroid called Bilal, which, by the way, is the size of the Empire State Building and has a 1 in 2,500 chance of striking the Earth in about 150 years. Oh, well, I guess that might take out my great-grandkids, but we'll all be living in as a brain in a jar by then anyway, so I guess it's really not that big of a deal. So OSIRIS-REx is NASA's spacecraft that's been orbiting the asteroid for over two years, and this week it successfully approached and took a sample of the asteroid, which it will then return to Earth by the year 2023. The hope is that the sample will help scientists learn about the composition of asteroids and how they might seed life throughout the galaxy, you know, when they're not wiping out life by slamming into planets 150 years from now. And this is one of the things that makes science and space so cool. People have been working on this project for over a decade, and it's not even done for another two years. And after that, people get to actually study the rocks themselves. And what's beautiful about all this is that during that time, some people may leave, some people may come into the project, but regardless of all of that, or why, the project itself will still be completed with the same vision as when it was just an idea sketched on the back of a cocktail napkin. It won't matter who comes in, or why, and all that matters here is the science and the discovery, and that's just a beautiful thing. And I need a tissue. I'll be right back. You might have thought it was ridiculous last week when we talked about Slack developing a stories concept for a service. Well, now LinkedIn has one. That's right, the social network that you probably don't use is building a stories section, which is, you guessed it, videos you can post for 24 hours and then they disappear, and for the love of God, why? It's not like stories is the missing link and why the social network isn't more popular. I visit LinkedIn quite a bit because there are some great stories there, and they're posted by people who are somewhat vetted. Like, anyone there can post a story or an article, but not all of those stories or articles get pushed out to the masses. They're just much more curated, which is both 
refreshing and honestly kind of frustrating, mostly frustrating because I'd like to get my stories out there, but I can't seem to crack the editors there. All the same, I still publish my articles and podcasts on the platform, and I actually do get some good engagement there, which is very nice and I appreciate it. But I can't stress this enough. In addition to Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Slack, and whoever else I'm forgetting, LinkedIn will become, what, the sixth, the seventh platform that I'm not going to use stories on? Why are these things valuable? Why does impermanent creation attract people so much? I publish podcasts, and 10 years from now, you'll still be able to listen to the stupid things that I say today. So, stories? Just hell no. So here's a cool thing. Fast Company has a write-up about an Israeli startup called RE that is redefining how electric cars might be built in the future. Basically, think of giant skateboards, which are platforms with wheels with self-contained motors. Then, you build up whatever car you want on top of it. And the story talks about the advantages here, and one of them really stuck out for me. Picture a car which is built on one of these platforms, and something goes wrong with the drivetrain. Now you take your car into the shop. Well, instead of giving you a loaner car, maybe the mechanic just pops off your car from the platform, drops it onto another platform, and voila! Refurbished car, or loaner platform, or whatever. Either way, you're out of there while your other car gets serviced. It's an interesting concept, and it kind of makes me wonder why cars aren't already built like that. Maybe it's terribly impractical, which I could also understand, but damn it, I want a platform on wheels that I can pop off the platform and pop onto another one. Why is that so hard? Well, according to Ree, it's not so hard. Fast Company also points out to numerous other auto manufacturers who are also following suit, so it may not be long before we start to see this come to fruition. Can I get a mobile podcast studio on an electric car skateboard? Now that would be pretty wild. This next story is a scientific paper that I'm going to take with a grain of salt, or I'm going to be immensely fascinated by. I can't tell which yet, but according to a peer-reviewed paper on the subject, time travel may be immune to paradoxes because time will correct itself, which seems to lean more towards the 12 monkeys theory of time travel, which is to say you can't change the past, because it already happened, and anything that you might do to change that will inevitably either not happen because it didn't, or it will cause the event that you're trying to change to happen because it did. I think there's a certain romance to this idea that you can't change the past, and I genuinely wish more time travel stories explored this kind of story. But that leads me to my next question. What numbers? According to the news article, physicists have, quote, run the numbers, but... What numbers are they running? As far as I know, no one's ever traveled through time except, you know, us. We're all traveling through time as we speak, forward at a one-to-one ratio, but no one has ever been able to alter that flow of time except by being in space or near a black hole, stuff like that. So I'm just not sure how physicists would be able to know this. Of course... I don't know how physicists know anything that they know. They're physicists, and as I said earlier on this podcast, I'm a moron. So, I guess, great news, folks. You can travel through time and not kill your grandfather, because if you did, you might actually become your own grandfather, because time will correct itself, and you just slept with your grandmother. And as much as you don't want to think about that, according to physicists, even if you could travel back in time to the start of this podcast, you could not unlisten to it. Time is on my side, baby. And finally, I mean, who could have seen this coming except 
well, mostly everyone. If you've been wondering how to say Queeby or Quibi or Quabi, well, just don't worry about it anymore because it's gone. Less than six months after launching, Quibi is closing its doors. The honchos over at Quibi aren't really sure what the problem was. It could have been a flawed concept from the start, or it could have been coronavirus that made everyone stay home and stream shows from Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu and Peacock and HBO Max and, well, basically everything except for Quibi. Who knows? Could be either one. I guess we'll just never know. One outlet was quick to point out that Quibi shut down after only 128 days, three quarters of which were the free trial to start using Quibi. I would say it went bad, but it never really went good, so I guess it couldn't have gone bad. It just stayed bad. I mean, hell, the only reason Apple TV Plus is still a thing is because Apple gave away a year of service to millions of people last November. Tuning into my show is one of the best and cheapest ways that you can help me out. Just being there to listen like an indifferent boyfriend sitting on the couch watching the Cubs game is super important to me. But you can also help me out more directly by becoming my patron. For as little as $2 per month, you can get in on the ground floor of this podcast and help support the show. Plus, you'll get additional benefits like uncut interviews, bonus live shows, and so much more. Just go to patreon.com slash benefit of a doubt. That's patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. There are more great options for helping me out at benefitofadow.com slash support. That's benefitofadow.com slash support. You'll get a list of all of my affiliations and monetization options, all wrapped up in a neat little package at benefitofadow.com slash support. I hope you visit, I hope you review, and as always, I thank you for listening. Going into this review, I had... Tepid expectations. A T-Mobile branded phone, how good could it be? Sure, it's made by TCL, who gave me a pleasant surprise earlier this year, but honestly, this phone was the definition of tempered expectations. You can get it for either $200 or $400, depending on your circumstances, and at the latter, it's a good deal. At the former, this might just be a steal. This is our full review of the T-Mobile Revel 5G. So I want to temper expectations a little bit here. This is a pretty good phone, not a great phone, for a number of different reasons. The hardware is right on par with devices you'll find smack dab in the mid-range. You've got a Snapdragon 765 processor, 128 gigabytes of expandable storage, six gigabytes of RAM, a 4,500 milliamp hour battery, and all this lies beneath a 6.5 inch FHD plus IPS TFT display. And side note, considering that this is an LCD display, they get impressive blacks out of it. Well done. Anyway, the build of the phone is very nice with a polycarbonate shell, even if the phone is a thick boy. The back of the phone has T-Mobile's signature magenta faded into a silvery black. It's actually quite striking. I'm a sucker for great colorways, and T-Mobile nailed this one. Around the side, you have a power and volume rocker in the correct order. So on the bottom, you have dual screen grills covering a single speaker. And to answer your question, no, I will never cease to be amused by that. 
The phone does feature dual firing speakers, utilizing the earpiece as a second speaker, which is awesome. The speaker itself is a bit on the tinny side, but not ear piercing like the blue G90 Pro, fortunately. And finally, on top, there is a headphone jack. On the back is a Pixel 5 copying, iPhone copying, square camera module with three sensors, a 48 megapixel main camera, an 8 megapixel wide angle camera, and a 5 megapixel macro camera. On the front is a 16 megapixel selfie camera. We will talk about the cameras later with an exciting announcement, but for now, just know that they exist. Some people will complain about polycarbonate backs on phones. I'm not one of them. Frankly, I think I've seen enough glass sandwiches in my day to last me for quite a while. What's odd, though, is that the IMEI number of the phone is printed on the back, and I'm not entirely sure why. You'll also find T-Mobile branding and the capacitive fingerprint sensor. The last part is a nice addition, and it can be used as a shutter button for the camera. I'll admit, I found that to be a very limited use, but it's one of those features that I think people could get on board with. One last thing on the power button, it's also a notification light, which is just kind of weird. It's not like, ugh, weird, it's more like, huh, weird. And it's a little bit of, why, weird. It's not bad, it's just unusual to see. You're looking at the phone sitting on the table, and all of a sudden the power button lights up, and you're like, what the hell? TCL has a history of playing with buttons, so I'm not surprised to see this. It's more of a curiosity than anything. So let's move on to the software. The software on this phone is very close to stock Android with obligatory T-Mobile branding in some places. Most notably, that shows up in the Google feed off to the left. T-Mobile is doing its usual Google and T-Mobile tabs up at the top. Fortunately, and sorry T-Mobile, the T-Mobile tab is easy enough to ignore. The phone ships with Android 10. No word on whether or not it'll see Android 11. I sure hope so, but honestly, who knows? It's a $400 phone. As it is, Android 10 is very, very good. So the only things we're really missing out on are smart home controls behind the power button. And honestly, do we really need those? Surprisingly, there wasn't a ton of bloatware on the phone, though that could be just because I am a T-Mobile subscriber, so all that stuff is kind of old hat to me. You've got your T-Mobile app, your T-Mobile Tuesdays app, and the voicemail apps, and that's about it for the stock install. I continued along with the gesture navigation for the T-Mobile phone, and that works really well here, too. The Revel also continues Google's insistence that the Google search bar be suction cuffed to the bottom of the screen. Once again, that's not where I like it. Now get off my lawn. The one main software diversion from stock Android is the Next Vision setting that comes on the phone. This is a sort of visual enhancement feature that can make your screen warmer, adjust your color saturation, and even go into a not-quite-black-and-white reading mode to make your phone more like an e-reader, which is valuable, I suppose. And this is not the last time you'll hear about Next Vision. Well, it is in this review, but going forward, spoiler alert. The phone comes with an ambient display that it calls lock screen display. It does not come with double tap to wake, unfortunately. The bleeps and bloops that are on by default every time you wake and sleep the phone are a little bit annoying, but those are easily turned off. And one last thing, and I hesitate to bring this up because I'm not sure if this is a product of the phone or Google Backup or whatever. I only mention it because it's the first time I've ever seen it, and I've set up two more phones since then, and I still haven't seen it. So if you want to call me a noob, fine, but I was absolutely blown away the first time I set this phone up and everything transferred over from my last phone, including app folders. And, and at first I was like, right on, Google Backup, that's got to be it. 
But then I set up the Samsung Galaxy S20 Fan Edition, whose review is coming next, by the way, and it didn't do anything of that. Samsung is still grouchy about moving into its phones, and you can bet we'll be talking about that on the S20 FE review. But whatever it was... I don't think it was T-Mobile or TCL. I assume it was Google, but whoever deserves the credit, please take the credit because it was amazing, and I really, 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 really want to see that again forever, always. Overall, there's very little not to like about the software. If you're looking for a clean, basic software experience that captures the core of Android, this will do the job for you. Battery life is also very good here. I average anywhere between four and a half to five hours of screen on time. Again, it's not the best measure of battery life, but it's what I got. Most nights I went to bed with around 15% left in the tank. Sometimes it was a little bit less, but I was also playing a lot of games on this phone, so that's completely understandable. And speaking of gaming, we can move right on into performance. This phone has a Snapdragon 765, which is no slouch, as we've learned. It seems that TCL or T-Mobile did some software optimization in this regard, though, because I was able to do some decent gaming on this phone. Call of Duty Mobile and Asphalt 9? I wouldn't say this is a gaming phone, but I would give it the same title I gave the G90 Pro, which is to say this is a phone you can game with. I don't know if that speaks highly of the Revel 5G or brings down the G90 Pro, but that's for you to decide. Don't try Fortnite on this phone, though. It's not pretty. As for raw numbers, let's go to the geek. You've got a single core score of 592 and a multi core score of 1856. The single core score is slightly better than the Samsung Galaxy A71. Meanwhile, the multi core score puts it right around the Pocophone F1, a flagship of yesteryear. So overall, it's not too shabby from a power perspective. Make no mistake, the Snapdragon 765 is a capable processor. And so that means that there's really only going to be one more area to talk about on this phone, and that is the camera. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, we know, dude, but this is a podcast. How are you supposed to tell us how good or bad a camera is on an audio podcast? And as it happens, I agree. And frankly, I don't like your tone. That's why if you check the link in the show notes on benefitofadow.com, you will find a link to my newly created YouTube channel, and I'm going to ask you to subscribe. And the main reason I'm going to ask you to subscribe is because I really need subscribers to get up to whatever the goalpost is now to get a custom name. So click on the link in the show notes and subscribe, pretty please, with sugar on top. But I'm not going to make you watch a video to see the camera results. I'm going to tell you right here. Of course, you will notice that the voiceover in the video sounds strangely similar to what I'm about to say because, well, to put it frankly, one voiceover recording, two paychecks. So without further ado, let's get into the camera. The T-Mobile Revel 5G is a decidedly mid-range phone, and make no mistake, that is reflected in the camera. But that being said, I found some fun surprises in the camera that I didn't expect to find, so let's dive right in. And we're going to start with your typical, air quotes, flower shot. The T-Mobile Rebel 5G comes with a macro sensor, which is nice on the detail, especially when you're separating your subject in the foreground with the bokeh in the background. When you zoom in with the main sensor, you don't pull out a whole lot of other detail that you wouldn't have gotten with that macro sensor. So let that be a lesson to you, don't zoom for macro shots. Switching to the wide-angle sensor, you'll notice a definitively wider view, but with a definitive loss of detail. And by the way, that's going to be the theme here. 
I grabbed a shot of my kids playing on a gigantic pile of tractor tires, and because let's be honest, how often are you going to have the opportunity to grab a photo of your kids playing on a gigantic pile of tractor tires? And this is a prime example of what I mean when I say this camera is, quote, social media good. On a phone screen, the tires look like they're buried in white gravel, but blow this photo up to actual size, and that gravel kind of looks like a bed of rice. You just don't retain fine enough detail on the fully zoomed in shots. That's not necessarily bad. It's not great either. As for moving subjects, the camera performs surprisingly decent most of the time. A shot of my daughter mid backflip on her trampoline is arguably one of my favorite photos that I've ever taken of her. But a similar photo that I took from the side gets a weird artifacting around her hairline that makes her hair appear in two places at once. It's just really weird. We'll call action shots kind of a 50-50 split. You might get something great, or it might suck. Now let's compare the main sensor with the wide angle sensor. And while we're here, we're gonna dive a little bit into the zoom on this camera as well. The color representation here is fairly close, which is not something you'll often see in a mid-range camera. The main sensor slides towards the cooler end of the spectrum, and that's most visible in the sky on a cloudy day. But the biggest difference is the extreme loss of detail on the wide sensor. If the main sensor is social media good, the wide angle is barely social media good. It's not terrible, but it's not really good either. At night, the difference between sensors is not as extreme, and one important note here, the night photos I took were at Wrigley Field in the city of Chicago, and when I was shooting, I noticed something I'd never noticed before. There's a hell of a lot of ambient light around the old ballpark, which, come to think of it, duh, there's gonna be, it's in the city, but it occurs to me, living out in the suburbs where you have to send out search parties just to find a street light, what I look for in a night shot is probably different than what a city dweller would look for, so keep that in mind. Speaking of night shots, holy cow, the lens flare. I mean, this camera shoots like a Michael Bay documentary on explosions. There were times, especially when the lights were on in the foreground, that I almost completely lost my subject because of the lens flaring. I mean, just yikes. The night shots aren't the worst I've ever seen, but if there's any way to get some light on your subject without having the light actually in frame, use it. The Rebel 5G also comes with a super night mode, which is fine as long as there's nothing moving in the scene. The camera uses a series of exposures to really brighten up the scene, but as you would expect, movement gets really muddy. Plus, the photos themselves are sort of surreal, like they look like they were taken during the day, but where did those streaks of light come from? Was there a nuclear explosion somewhere? The camera also has a light painting mode, which I didn't test because I suck at light painting, so just trust me, it's there. One of my favorite modes on the camera is portrait mode, and in this area, the camera performed fairly well. Sure, the camera has trouble with hair and rough edges, but honestly, what camera doesn't? But the one test I was surprised went very well was the whole propping your head up on your hand test. Many cameras will not differentiate and blur the background inside the circle of your arm. This phone was not tripped up by that, which was a fun surprise. As for zooming, you know, pretty much don't. You get away with 2x, even a 4x if you're not looking at anything textured, like a sign with text on it. But as for grass and trees, es no bueno. Things get chunky and blocky, which is fine if you're looking at a sign like at Wrigley Field. If you're looking at trees, modern art masterpiece. On the video side, the rear camera is capable of shooting 4K at 30 frames per second with electronic stabilization. It's okay on the stabilization front. Detail and color reproduction is there as well. On the flip side, the selfie cam actually carries very good stabilization for selfie videos and walk and talks, but only at a max of 1080p. 
So that about covers it. Overall, this is a good camera as long as you're sticking with social media. And that means it's fairly decent for the Instagram TikTok circuit, which, let's face it, is pretty much where all of society is headed. And that takes us right into our U review segment, and you might notice that I didn't talk about 5G all that much, and considering 5G is literally in the name, that seems like an oversight, but it wasn't. Because our first U review question comes from Abhi Sheikh, who asks, I'm really curious how T-Mobile Revel 5G from a network speed perspective. T-Mobile made the phone for the T-Mobile network. I'm really expecting that it gets awesome speed. So let's talk about speeds. As we've talked about on this podcast, Sub-6 5G is really the only game in town. Verizon pimped its own millimeter wave 5G network for like two years before finally conceding and saying, okay, fine, here's a Sub-6 network because it's the only way Apple will let us carry the iPhone. Sub-6 is not as fast as millimeter wave. It's not even close. Sub-6 5G is barely faster than really good LTE. So in short, and I can't emphasize this enough, Do not buy a phone for the 5G capability. Do not buy any phone for the 5G capability. We're not there yet. But this phone has 5G, and how does it work? So I spent one evening driving around my home city of Chicago from the far suburbs to downtown. I had the Rebel 5G and the LG V60, both of whom are T-Mobile branded and both of whom have active T-Mobile SIMs. In most cases, when running a basic speed test with the phones side-by-side, the LG beat out the Revel. I've put up a map on BenefitofADow.com showing the speeds. In some cases, the Revel outperformed the V60, but frankly, it wasn't that often. Most of the time, when one beat the other, it was by a significant margin, too. The Revel topped out the V60 in Hillside, Illinois, right outside a T-Mobile store, funny enough, at Wrigley Field, Go Cubs, and in the Jefferson Park neighborhood. In Bartlett, and at the Woodfield Mall, at the Sears Tower, and in Roselle, Illinois, the V60 beat out the Revel. So, it's a nice idea to think that this is a T-Mobile-branded phone. T-Mobile could bake in some special sauce that optimizes the phone for the network. And I'm sure T-Mobile could, maybe if they wanted to sell the phone for $800 instead of $400. As it stands, T-Mobile is pushing this as an affordable 5G option for its network, and there's nothing wrong with that. And this is a baller question, Abhishek. Thanks very much for it. But we move on. Herb asks, regarding the Revel 5G, I live and work in a rural area, poor 4G and no 5G. I assume I'm better off with a different phone? Yeah. Basically, unless you find yourself in a more urban area with better coverage, 5G is a long way away from you, and I'm sorry to say that. And holy crap, I know you'll never see this coming, but yeah, you're probably better off with the Pixel 4a. That being said, Domenico Lamberti noted that the Pixel 4a doesn't seem to perform well on the fringes of network coverage, so on that note, it's hard to say. But what I can tell you is that this phone might be fine for you, but probably not the best choice, all things considered. And finally, Darren asks, is the T-Mobile Revel 5G a good competitor in price to the Pixel 4a or the TCL 10L or Pro? And the answer to that question is probably, under most circumstances, eh, no, and probably yes. The one thing that this phone does better than all of those others is 5G, but as I said earlier in this review, do not buy a phone for 5G, which leaves the field wide open for all of those competitors, and they all have perks going for them. The TCL 10L has price and value for the money. At $225 or $250, Cliff could speak more to this because he got a review unit, but overall, he kind of loved that phone. 
The TCL 10 Pro is a beautiful phone with a magnificent build, and it's a nice flagship with a lot of neat tricks up its sleeve. The Pixel 4a has the Rebel 5G beat in the camera department, no doubt. Meanwhile, the Rebel beats them all in terms of performance. It's such a hard question to answer because they all have their pluses and minuses. I don't think that I need to tell you in my world. I'd take the Pixel 4a because it's cheaper and a good size, and I love the phone. And by the way, I still have no idea why. So where does this leave us with the T-Mobile Revel 5G? Overall, this is a very decent offering for our quadruple Benjamin. And you can grab it on a deal. T-Mobile carries this phone for $200 at times. If you're a T-Mobile subscriber... I'm on board. It's as good or better than just about anything else in this price range. You can last a whole day, you can play some games, you can shoot some TikToks, and the phone flat out looks nice, which is really all you can ask for $400. I could see myself carrying this phone for a while. The processor will hold up for the next year, the camera is just good enough to be able to show off some nice looking photos, and the phone carries all the 5Gs. <laughs> So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I would like to thank T-Mobile for providing the Revel 5G review unit and remind you that once again, these opinions were all my own and T-Mobile was not given any editorial oversight at all. I'd like to thank Cliff Thomas for all of his hard work behind the scenes, but most of all, and as always, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.